This program is brought to you by Suffolk University. Please visit us on the web at www.suffolk.edu. Mayor Corey A. Booker. Thank you. Thank you very much. Thank you. Thank you. It is an honor to be here. I love graduations because they bring back to me a flood of memories of my graduations. Every graduate here should consider yourself very lucky that you do not have my family. They would crowd into any hall that a graduation was being held, and indeed we got caught up in probably one of the worst scandals in New Jersey when my family would not accept that they could, that could only have a limited number of tickets, so we had the great counterfeit ticket scandal of 1987. We have an airport in Newark, and for one of my graduations, my parents came with about 100 or so family members who all each brought their own cameras and a spare. And since it was a night graduation, we ended up getting fined by the FAA for the blinding lights that emanated from above. My family celebrated moments like this. But I cannot impart to you any wisdom that is new or original that my family did not impart to me on these days. My grandfather probably was the most noted person in my recollection of every graduation, and he would tell me the same stories over and over again, the same jokes. I would hear them. I hear them still in my sleep. He would come up to me and say, you see, boy, the tassel is worth the hassle. <laughs> And then he would give me a lot of advice that was sound. The degree you receive today should not define you. You should define the degree. My grandfather would tell me the most important thing he would want from me is for me to be me. You be you, Corey. Older I've gotten, the more I realize how critically important that is. My grandfather talked about power and that the greatest force in this world is the force of love. That so many people underestimate their power. In fact, Alice Walker said the greatest way people surrender power is not recognizing they have it in the first place. I've seen what people with law degrees can do in my city and it's simply transformative. Whether in the private or public sector, their genius, their willingness to come together, to be innovative, has helped put Newark on the map with new models of prisoner reentry programs, with new ways of doing preventative justice, with community courts, and more. But let me give you perhaps the best example of this challenge to not underestimate yourself. In fact, the challenge of not conforming to a world that has powerful leveling forces to stand up and to evidence the truth of who you are, the uniqueness that you have. And this perhaps started when I graduated from high school. Still the screaming of my family ringing in my ears when I got my high school diploma. I was on one of my many trips to go to college in California. And, and I tell you, I got to California and got involved, but it really wasn't until the summer of after my freshman year that I got one of the most important lessons. Now we need to understand that we have to affirm the humanity of everyone you meet. 
They're there in your life for a purpose. And this young man that I met in this program, he stunned me at the end when I thought in my youthful arrogance I was going to leave the young people I was working with in an after-school program in an inner city in California. I was going to leave them with a powerful message. And indeed, I had a sports motivational speaker come to my high school many months before I got to college who gave this wonderful exercise where he had everybody in the room raise their hands as high as they could. And we all did. And then he said, raise your hands three inches higher. And we eventually stood on our tiptoes and he gave this powerful motivational speech about you can always do a little bit more. Well, now I was with these kids that I was assigned to for the summer on the last day, hot August day. And I said, fellas, I want to do this experiment with you. Raise your hands as high as you can. And the guys immediately look at me and said, what are you talking about? Oh, I'm tired. Oh, put your hand down, man. The brother's got B.O. I don't want to do this. Come on. (laughs) Well, I am not the most persuasive man when it comes to child psychology, so I resorted to a base form of persuasion that has become very notable in New Jersey politics. I reached my hand in my pocket, pulled out a $5 bill, and decided I would bribe them. And I said, five bucks to the kid that could raise his hand the highest. And immediately the kid's hands shot up. They didn't need a PhD in economics. They were powerfully motivated, rational economic actors. And I stood there with a smug satisfaction looking at the young people. And then all of a sudden to my left, there was that young man, the shortest of the whole lot, with his arms crossed, his face in a pout, looking down and dejected. And I was about to go over to him and pat him on the back and give him a there, there, the last one of the group that I would want to make not think that he could compete with his older and taller friends. And just as I walked over to him, he sprinted towards the door, and, and, and I, I ran after him, catching up from behind, picking him up off the air right before he got to the door, and his little legs were squiggling and wiggling underneath me, and I turned him around, and I said, Robert, what's wrong? And he said, let me go, let me go. I said, Robert, what's wrong? And he looked over at the kids and back at me, and he said, you said you'd give $5 to the kid who could raise his hand the highest, right? And I said, yes. And he looked back over at the kids who were struggling and comparing their hands and then shot a glance at me. And with the wisdom that betrayed his age, he said to me, well, I know a way to get to the roof. (laughs) I gave him the $5. We live in a world that is going to want to constrain you and confine you and make you stuck in paralyzing paradigms of what is. You need to understand that you were not born to fit in, to go along, to get along. You were born to manifest your truth, your divinity, your genius, your authenticity. This is what the world yearns for right now. Not people who are accepting of what is and try to conform to that, but who are demanding of what can be and what must be and what should be and who want to let that power of love inside of themselves out into the world. My family would tell me there's two ways to go through life. You could be a thermometer or a thermostat. A thermometer is just one that reflects the outside world, but a thermostat is one of those people that wherever they go, they raise the temperature. They bring on the power and they transform. I got this lesson over and over in my journey and still experience it every day. When I was a law student just like you graduating, I made a decision in my life that I was going to go to the city I loved. But I wasn't just going to go, I wanted to answer the challenge of that great American prophet, Chris Rock, (laughs) who said in one of his comedic routines that why is it the most violent street in every city 
has been named for the man that stood for nonviolence. And I moved on to Martin Luther King Boulevard in Newark, New Jersey. Now, Martin Luther King Boulevard in Newark, New Jersey actually has astounding heights of education, and our legal centers sit there. It's an actually extraordinary boulevard, but the section I chose to move on to had extreme challenges. At least that's how I perceived them. I moved there into a room in a boarding house for recovering drug addicts and was shocked that there was an abandoned building used right across the street, right across the way for drugs. I saw a narcotics trade. They traded pharmaceuticals in a way that could have put uh, uh, Rite Aid to shame. And I, I remember looking at the uh, high rises and just seeing the world as it was. Somebody told me that if you want to, to do something in this city and in this neighborhood, you've got to meet the tenant president of those high-rise buildings. And as I started going to the buildings, I heard yet another graduation comment come back to my mind when my grandfather would stand there looking at me and say, boy, I never want you to forget that you can learn more from a woman on the fifth floor of the projects than you ever can from one of these fancy professors. And indeed, like some poetic point in the spiritual world, this woman that I was going to visit, turns out she lived on the fifth floor of these buildings. And I remember knocking on her door again in my youthful arrogance, and she opens the door and says, who is it? And I pulled up my pants like I was in a John Wayne movie and looked at her and said, well, ma'am, I'm Cory Booker, just a graduate from Yale Law School, and I'm here to help you, ma'am. And she looks at me almost in disgust, and she says, you want to help me? And I said, yeah, I'm a young man, I'm going to pass the bar soon, and I'm, I'm going to, I'd like to help you out. And she starts shaking her head and says, you want to help me? Sure, fine. She closes the door. She says, follow me. And she walks down her steps. I trail right after her. She walks through the courtyard. I trail right after her. She walks through some of the narcotics trade that was going on. I walked really close to her. And, and we get into the middle of the street. She stands in the middle of this major boulevard. And she wheels around and she says, tell me what you see. I said, what? She goes, describe to me what you see. And she holds her arms out. And I look around and I start describing the neighborhood. An abandoned building narcotics trade. I, I just told her what I saw around me. And the more I talked, the more she shook her head and that look of disgust seemed to take over her very being. And finally, when I finished, she said, you can never help me. And she starts walking away. I run after her, meet her on the side of the road. And I said, what are you talking about? I, I, I don't understand. And she looks at me hard and shakes her finger and says, boy, you need to understand something. That the world you see outside of you is a reflection of what you have inside of you. And if you're one of those people who only sees problems or darkness or despair, that's all there's ever going to be. But if you're one of those folks who every time you open your eyes, you see hope and you see opportunity and you see love or the face of God, then you could be someone that helps me. And she turned around and started walking to her buildings, leaving me there thinking to myself, okay, grasshopper, thus endeth the lesson. But I went back to her apartment and I began sitting in her kitchen and watching these amazing, mostly older African-American women come into that apartment, strategize at a table about how to deal with a slum landlord, about how to transform a dank basement into a glorious celebration of every holiday they could imagine anything to give their kids sanctuary. They, they had the best Valentine's Day parties I'd ever experienced. They had the best St. Patrick's Day party I ever had, and there wasn't an Irish person within blocks of there. <laughs> they had unleashed their power of love. 
They had found a way to raise challenging circumstances to unexpected outcomes. I joined with them and that began my professional career. I tell you right now, we are a nation that is being damned with low expectations. That we have too many people that sit back on their couches in what I call a state of sedentary agitation. They get so upset about what's going on in the world, but they don't get up and do something about it. We are the inheritors of a profound legacy of struggle, of people who understood that democracy is not a spectator sport. It is a full contact participatory endeavor. And who are we not to realize that we are the descendants of heroes, that we have in our very DNA unlimited reservoirs of strength, of power, and love? Who are we not to savor every moment of our lives as a gift that it is because we all in this hallowed hall drink deeply from wells of freedom and liberty that we did not dig. We eat lavishly from banquet tables prepared for us by the labor of our ancestors. We have an obligation to infuse into this world that which is inside of us, to never yield to cynicism or negativity or doubt, to be courageously ourselves and to take risks in pursuit of our truth. I'm a man that believes I would rather have my ship sunk at sea than have it rot in the harbor, sitting in safety and security never boldly going and manifesting that which it was created to do. You all are those vessels, and we have worlds of possibility to discover. Now, this to me is not as grand as many people want to make it. So many people want to tell you that life is about the big speech or the big election or the big fight, but, but that's not what life is about. I have found that life is really about moments. It's about the choices we make and the most powerful choice we all must accept is that we have this simple, simple thing to decide. Will we accept conditions as they are or will we take responsibility for changing them? It's not a life choice, it's a moment's choice. That trip out to California gave me another lesson. I came on a plane that it evidenced this to me powerfully. I was 19 years old, cramming onto a plane from, from East Coast to West Coast, a long flight, but somehow God Almighty was shining down on me this particular day because on this packed plane, I was sitting in this oasis where I had two seats open next to me. Now, I'm a very large man, and especially when I was 19, I was chiseled. Right now, just imagine that, if you will. <laughs> right now, I'm, I'm, I'm not so chiseled. There's jiggle where there was chisel before. But either way, to have two seats open next to you on an airplane, the Lord Almighty definitely saw his favorite son and gave him respite on this six-hour journey. And the plane closes, and I started humming to myself gospel hymnals that I learned in a small black church in New Jersey. And suddenly, as I began to elevate, the door of the plane opens. 
And almost as somebody hooked up a nuclear power generator to a huge speaker, a blood-curdling scream emanated throughout the plane. Everybody's eyes stopped what they were doing and shot to the door, and in walks this woman with a toddler in one hand and a baby in the other. And that baby was announcing its truth to the world. It was being its authentic self. And this woman comes down the aisle and everybody on the plane moves from her to look at me. And suddenly I was the subject of great pity. And my conversations with God changed immediately. Oh Lord, why hast thou forsaken me? Here this woman comes to the aisle with her woofer and tweeter in one arm and the young man with the other and says, excuse me, I'm sitting there. And all fibers in my being screamed, no you're not. And she moved in. But this is the power of life. I could have surrendered to circumstance and allowed me to be the thermometer of my family's warnings. But I realized I had a choice. And at 19 years old, something clicked inside myself and I said, this could either be the worst flight of my life or I could make it the best. And I said, I'm gonna make this moment the best. And immediately I turned to her and tried to make her feel better because as soon as I tuned away from my feelings and connected to her spirit, I saw that she was painfully embarrassed. I started talking with her and making, trying to get her to smile and suddenly I was playing with the young toddler there and I was telling that young kid by the flight, time the flight got off every joke I had in my repertoire appropriate for a five-year-old boy. I asked him, why did Tigger and Eeyore have their heads in the toilet? He didn't know, so I told him. They were looking for poo. I told you, <laughs> I did the best I can. At 35,000 feet, I was killing. <laughs> we were having a blast playing tic-tac-toe. I remember the movie that came on. It was glory. I told her, you've got to see this movie. I'll watch the kids. And by the time we landed, we were fast friends. We exchanged information. I took her address. We all know this feeling. You say you're going to keep in touch. We never kept in touch. Five years passed. Ten years passed. Fifteen years passed. I'm now running for mayor of the city of Newark. In my first election, I'm getting my tail kicked. I'm feeling low. And on the, one of the worst days in this impossible election, when I was desperate for hope, I get a letter in the mail. The woman said, you may not remember me, but I met you 15 years ago on a flight. The kindness that you showed me then still is with me today. I want to let you know something. Uh, my family owns a factory in Newark, New Jersey. And as the letter went on, she offered to make a campaign contribution to my campaign and elected officials like that. <laughs> she asked me to come out and speak to her workers and that toddler who suffered through some of the worst jokes he'd heard in his life was now a young man who became a volunteer on my campaign and one of the best workers we had. Every one of you has a power inside of you. And it's not expressed in your great life moments, it's expressed in every moment that's afforded to you as a gift. And how will you live? Because one day you will pass from this earth, but what you give here, the love and the light you emanate will live forever. 
just like those astrophysicists that look up at the light from stars that have been gone for millions of years, but their light is invincible and enduring. And that is what you have within you. You could be in the depths of the coldest winter, but inside of you, you have an invincible spring. You may be plunged into the darkness of circumstance, but inside you, you have an inextinguishable light. This is who you are. And I see it in Newark every day of my life. God has put me in a city of heroes. History is not about great men who descended from the sky and we read about their names. We all know who they are. History is about individuals whose names will never appear in the papers. But by the choices that they made in the aggregate, they have created the luxury that we experience today in this democracy. I had a guy in a building in Newark, in a high-rise, that looked out at a drug lot overgrown with weeds and debris for years. He gets a stimulus check in the mail, a retiree, and instead of taking that check and going out and buying a flat screen TV or taking his friends for dinner, he said, enough. And he went to the Home Depot in my city and bought a lawnmower and a weed whacker and marched right into that drug lot being respectful to the men who were doing their wares, but he just started mowing the lawn. First day he kind of messed up and, and, and bagged up the stash of the drug dealers and, and they were ripping open his bags, but every day, step after step, he went out into a yard, a small patch of earth, and tended to it and made it beautiful. And before you knew it, the drug dealers just left the community. And he became a hero. Let me tell you right now that life is not about the big. Life is about every day doing some act of kindness and decency and love consistently and unyieldingly that over a lifetime aggregate into transformative change. This is what we are called to do. Let me finish with my grandfather one more time. You see, I loved this man. He was a guy that was born to a single mother, incredibly poor. As my family used to say, he couldn't afford to be poor, he was just Po, P-O, couldn't afford the other two letters. <laughs> he met his father once, who was a white man that lived in that town, who never claimed him as his son. He suffered from terrible health as a child and had challenges that ranged all through his life. He was an assembly worker in the Ford Motor Plants when blacks from the South moved north for job opportunities. He was a teacher. He was an entrepreneur, starting pool halls and laundry mats, collecting quarters with my mom at night to invest in yet another business. He moved to California and actually made it big in real estate. Then eventually he moved to Las Vegas and he said in a strange way, he said, why are you moving to Vegas, Granddad? He goes, I'm going to Vegas because you always bet on black. And I said, okay, Granddad. <laughs> All right. <laughs> you go, man. He battled cancer in the most profound way. The strength and the dignity he exhibited in the battle with that disease moved me every time I visited him. One time I visited him and it was really bad. He seemed to be even a little delusional and by the time I sort of kissed him on his forehead goodbye, he looked up at me and he said, goodbye, son. I love you. 
I love your children and I love your grandchildren. And I just smiled at him and walked out the door because I thought he was a little out of sorts because I am single, I have no children, and therefore I definitely have no grandchildren, although I'm still trying to figure out a way how I could just jump to being a grandparent. Seems like a much better gig. And in 2002, when I was in my election battle, looking for hope and being energized by people coming into my life, residents of my city willing to sacrifice time and energy on a campaign on the promise of hope, at a time that I was seeing a hill to climb and struggling to get up it, I get a call from a family member that said, call your grandmother because your grandfather has died. And I remember exactly where I was. I pulled over to the side of the road, not listening to what I was told to do, and I just cried. I felt like my spirit was curling up to a ball inside of myself, and I wept. Then almost as if I was reaching out for something to hold on to, I thought about my grandfather's last words to me. I love you, I love your children, I love your grandchildren. And forgive me if I'm reading too much into those words. It could have just been nonsensical. But I felt like I got a final message from him. It wasn't a graduation, but indeed it was a moment I'll remember. You see, we are here because people loved us so much. Generations ago, they would never know our names. But because of their love, they loved children and grandchildren and great-grandchildren that they would never know. Because of their love and sacrifice, they gave us our very being and our very life. They loved so much. White people and black people along underground railroads loved so much to deliver thousands into freedom. Men and women in sweatshops loved so much that they gave birth to workers' rights and universal public education and the end of child labor. People loved us so much. There are thousands of names that I can't even hope to know that loved me so much that they gave their lives on beaches from Normandy to Midway. They loved so much. These are people who told their truth in the universe, who did not yield from challenge, who did not conform to the norm or submit to the law of averages. These people stood up and loved they loved with a force that said, like Frederick Douglass, in life you don't get everything you pay for, but you must pay for everything that you get. They loved so much. They loved, like Martin Luther King, who said change will never roll in on the wheels of inevitability, but it must be carried in on the backs of people willing to sacrifice and struggle and love for it. They loved so much and now call to the conscience of a country that is willing to settle, to stand up with them in their memory and love, to stand before your fellow person and swear an oath, not with your words, but be like the great theologian that said, everywhere I go I preach the gospel, but only sometimes do I use words. This is how they loved. They swore with their being that they would infuse every moment with what makes them unique. And with this understanding, I end with a swear, with an avowal, with an oath that was made by a man whose poetry was read to me by that same family. 
family that would sit together and read Bible stories or large books. And this was one of my favorite things as a young man growing up that they would tell me. It's a story by Langston Hughes, who my parents tried to always tell me that you as an individual can do incredible things and manifest strength. But if you come together with others, that strength can turn into invincibility. And so these are the words I leave you with today. Langston Hughes wrote a poem called, Oh, Let America Be America Again. And he wrote, Oh, let America be America again, the land that never has been yet, but yet must be, the land where everyone is free, the poor man, the Indian, the Negro, me. Who made America? Whose sweat and blood, whose faith and pain, whose hand at the foundry, whose plow in the rain must make our mighty dream live again. Oh yes, I say it plain. America never was America to me, but I swear this oath, America will be. Class of 2010, show your power. Swear your oath. Tell your truth and let us take our nation higher. And if we do this together, we as a country will indeed find a way to get to the roof. Thank you. This preceding program was brought to you by Suffolk University. Please visit us on the web at www.suffolk.edu.